going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. <laughs> All right, we're recording now. Don't say anything bad about Michael Coy. Michael Coy's the best, and he just got married. Best. And he, he got did? COVID on his honeymoon. Can you believe it? So they had an extended honeymoon of COVIDness. Michael oh, Coy is uh, works here at Excordia at Benedictine, hmm. and he does a lot of our production work for the Liturgy Guys. So. Honeymoon COVID would be a good album name. Thank you, Michael. Don't be so coy. Chris, what are we talking about? <laughs> it's like a broken record. We're still at order of mass number one, but we're almost through it. Well, we're working through many different paragraphs of the general instructions. So, But you know what? The beginning of mass is important stuff. Well, it is. And I think uh, for many people in the in the pews, like they've never seen the inside of a Roman Missal. They just kind of take for granted that what the priest and the ministers is doing is correct and it, probably most of the time it is, but you know, I hope I hope that what all this discussion uh, is uncovering is the how much content, substance, meaning, detail is really there if we want uh, if we want this to shine. Did we ever decide what the beginning of the mass actually is? Remember when we talked about that a couple oh, weeks yeah. ago? <laughs> Sign of the cross or entrance? We don't know. I don't know. All right. So we last time we went to the priest went to the chair. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so if you're keeping score at home, we're still order of mass number one. And last time we talked about uh, the priest going to to the chair, and this time we're talking about uh, as it. This is the last this last part of order of mass number one. When the entrance chant is concluded, the priest and the faithful standing sign themselves with the sign of the cross, while the priest facing the people says, "In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit," and the people reply, "Amen." So that's what we want to have a little look at uh, this time. Yes. Right. So how this works is in the middle of the Missal, you've got kind of the what's called the order of mass. And that's the the basic structure and outline of the mass beginning to end. At the beginning of the Missal, you have this instruction manual called the general instruction of the Roman Missal. And that supplements a lot of this. And so we're going to read sort of order of mass number one with one eye and then go to the germ with the other eye. And we're going to look at number 49. And Dennis, maybe just mm-hmm. let's pick, pick up this point. Uh, along the way, because it's a pretty cool one. Uh, I was giving I was giving you a hard time. Yes, before Chris. I am outdated. We started how you have this. I'm outdated. Awful, outdated, uh, irrelevant, obsolete translation <laughs> of the germ. Because and the yet, title of that says you're finding it helpful. It it's says great greeting of the altar and the people gathered together and of the people exactly. gathered together. This is the first translation of the new general instruction that came with the new missile, but then it was retranslated after Liturgium Authenticum, I believe. It yeah, changed right. slightly. Yep. Well, it did, but I say for the worst, you know, Liturgium Authenticum comes out, and it's you know, it's all about this uh, fidelity to the uh, to the Latin original, which is uh, salutatio altaris et. Popoli congregati or something like it's that. It's not reverentia. It is not reverentia anything. Wow. But what's what's a salutation, Jesse? A greeting. A greeting. And so I think Dennis's outdated uh, translation is actually right on. But this uh, leads to the point, why, why would you ever greet an inanimate object? Because it's not 
merely an inanimate object. It's a sacrament of a person. I think that's it. Yeah. That's it. As in Christ, the doctrine, all the documents say that your altar signifies Christ standing amidst his people. We get the word salute from this same kind of word, right? It's a greeting. I suppose. But it's yeah. more than a greeting. It's a reverential uh, greeting. Well, as we talked in a previous podcast, I mean, how describe the reverence with which the the the, the priest and the deacon greet or salute the altar? How do they do it? They kiss. They kiss the altar. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They they kiss the altar. I mean, you know, you're probably not kissing your kitchen table or anything like that. Uh, I don't know. You spilled some gravy. Oh, uh, that's right. I'm I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> right before I cook, I just I kiss the kiss. I love you. Love you. Love you. <laughs> But, you know, if you don't read these rubrics sacramentally, there's just weird instructions that are long outdated and things like that. But once you get to you get kind of behind the scenes and see the realities, the supernatural realities, all this stuff in the mass and the liturgy has, well, then these instructions start to make a little bit more sense. But he does something before the kiss, right? Uh, what's that? Bow. It makes a profound bow. Yeah, we talked about that, too. It, yeah. You know, remember we talked about genuflecting? bowing, the chair, all this stuff, it always said, the, the germ always says X, Y, or Z signifies. And sacraments are outward signs that signify inward realities. And so again, that's the, that's the absolute correct uh, attack, take, tack, take, approach mm-hmm. uh, to, to, these, uh, to these things. How would it go with you guys if you went home at the end of the day and Made a profound bow before your wives and then offered a kiss. <laughs> She'd be suspicious. <laughs> What'd you do today? <laughs> Did you drop your contact? What's happening? Just say, you can say this is from DMAC. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Then they'd really be suspicious. Mm-hmm. Isn't okay, bowing anyway. appropriate in the Japanese culture? So like, you know, you have that. Some cultures well, you, that would be appropriate yeah. maybe. Yeah. Well, yeah. When you bow in front of someone, you make yourself vulnerable to them, right? You put your head down. They can smack you, cut your head off, whatever. So... The idea of bowing is not only I, it's, I reverence you, but because I reverence you, love you, trust you, I put myself in a vulnerable position before you. Uh, all right. Let's go to number 50. And we're not going to read from your unhel- your helpful, outdated. Uh, oh, man. Dennis. So uh, the, the current uh, germ says, and it, as an explanation of this, uh, when the entrance chant is concluded, the priest stands at the chair. So standing is a sacramental thing. The chair is a sacramental thing, as we talked last time. And together with the whole gathering, signs himself with the sign of the cross. And we're going to unpack that in a little bit. Uh, then by means of the greeting, he signifies. Everything is about signifying. And what is it the sacraments signify? The presence of the Lord. Exactly. Jesus Christ. So when you have this minister at that chair... Standing in that posture, saying or singing these words by making this gesture, it signifies and makes real Christ. In fact, it continues uh, by this greeting and the people's response, the mystery of the church gathered is made manifest. Yes. And that's just what it does. So, Well, because these are the words of baptism as well, right? So you've been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. What is the church? Well, the baptized people, what are they? Formed into the mystical body, and that's what the church is. So it, it, it might be easier if it said, you know, Jesus is here now, but instead it's, it, gives, it asks us to make a, a leap or two to say, in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit means all this other stuff. Hmm. Well, speaking of baptism, so when you, Dennis, you and I did a, some of these mystical body things, mystical voice presentations 10 years ago when the new missile 
came out and we tried to explain some of this stuff. Yes, we did. And when we explained just all of the meaning and content of the sign of the cross, one of the places we started was in Genesis 1.1. It has to do with water. It says something like, uh, in the beginning when uh, uh, God made the heavens and the earth and the earth was a formless waste while there was darkness uh, over the abyss and a mighty wind swept over the waters. And then God said... And so in that first moment of creation, you have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit over the waters, you know, which is going to be replayed uh, at baptism. And now at the beginning of Mass, you have something similar going on where you recall your baptism and you invoke the divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, at, the, at the beginning of Mass. And that's part of the content of this sign of the cross. Think also about... Um, uh, signs of the cross. Do you remember any of these from our presentation? Signs of the cross in the old covenant. Uh, there's the arm crossing with uh, the blessing of Esau and all that, right? Do you remember that? Yeah. One? Well, it wasn't Esau. It was um, uh, who was it? It was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Okay, so Jacob has a son, Joseph, and Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Wow. Okay. And so, yeah. So Joseph takes his two sons and he brings the two boys to their grandfather, who is Jacob. And as he brings them to, if you can kind of picture this in your mind's eye, he has uh, Ephraim. He, Joseph, has Ephraim in his own left hand because he's the older son. And Manasseh, I think that's right, in, I could get, (laughs) he's confused. He has the younger son in his right hand so that when Jacob goes to put his hands on them, the greater blessing will go to the older son through the right hand, and the lesser blessing will go through the left hand to the younger son. But when Jacob blesses them, he crosses his arms over, and he puts the greater blessing through the right hand on the younger son, whose name I can't remember. It's either Ephraim or Manasseh, and uh, versa Visa. But yeah, this sort of sign of the cross through this blessing of these uh, grandchildren is one of these sort of types or prefigurements that uh, occurs in the Old Covenant. It was Esau. I'm looking it up. He, yeah. Genesis 27, 34. Esau? Yeah. Um, hmm. Unless it's another That's person. Anyway, one. don't listen to me. I'm an idiot. Was the, was the blood on the doorpost during Pen- Pentecost also prefigurement of the cross? Yeah. I remember Father Martis would talk about this, that the, uh, in, I, uh, no, I don't know any Hebrew, but apparently this is the letter Ta. Tob or something like that, and it looks like a it looks like tau. a door tau because we had the tau cross, right? Well, that's how I well, say that's it. something a little different. So that the the tav is a Greek that looks like a letter T, oh, but in okay. Hebrew, that same or that parallel letter, I guess I only know this secondhand if it's true, looks like a door like two doorposts and a lintel. It looks like kind of a a square upside down U. Oh yeah, that one is different. You're right. Okay. And so when the blood was put upon the doorposts and the lintels, many of the fathers mm-hmm. saw this as a sign of a cross or gibbet or something like that. And in Greek, that same letter would be a T that looks like a sign of the cross. And there's all sorts of those in the Old uh, Testament. I think when I think this is an Ezekiel image where he's uh, uh, in the Babylonian captivity, and he has this image of uh, Jerusalem. And there's this, uh, these destroyers are going to go through the city of Jerusalem and, well, destroy it, which is what destroyers do. But uh, before that, uh, somebody goes through the city and he marks with a taw on their forehead uh, the sign. And then the avengers or whatever they're called, the destroyers, are not to harm those who have this sign 
on their foreheads. Okay? But to is leave that the them, Ezekiel story? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. And um, in any case, you know, there, there's all sorts of there, there, there's there's crosses at creation. There's crosses in culture. To be at a crossroads or to be crossed or to to vote is to you know you put an X, you know, there to vote for a liturgical institute class a president or something like that. Or Mary Xmas. Yeah, there you go. You ever understood why, why the heck would we put an X for C-R-I-S-T? But it became a symbol of, of Christ for that. Well, even that. So the, the sound. Yeah, the, the chi in the row. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, Christ's own cross is the definitive meaning. But, you know, what, what we did then and, you know, then being in these presentations for mystical body and stuff like that, you know, to make this, to make that gesture and to say those words is just, it's just brimming over with content, you know? So it's, it's so fitting that sort of the first words out of the priest's mouth are, good morning. <laughs> I mean, uh, oh, yeah. in the name of the father and the, I mean, just, there, there's turn no, to your left, turn to your right. Say hi to the person next to you. Nothing. In today's bulletin, uh, I just <laughs> want to let you know where the Christmas trees are still on sale. Okay. <laughs> let us begin as we begin all things. <laughs> yeah. And we don't begin in the name of the father and of the son of the Holy spirit. I heard this recently. We don't begin in the name of the father and son of the Holy spirit. We say these words because we've been baptized in the name of the father and the son of the Holy spirit. This is which joins us way more powerfully than any sense of social cohesion that comes from turning yourself, uh, you know, turning to the left and the right. We've been baptized into the body of Christ and act as Christ, and Christ is present in and through the church. That's serious business. And have donuts at the end and introduce yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, we've said this a couple times before. I mean, really? Is it that big of a deal? Is it that significant that mass begins in precisely this way. And I think, you know, if, if you want, you know, what, what the liturgy is, and especially mass is this great conduit of grace, not to get too mechanical about how grace is given, but it's this great, this great encounter, this great occasion where grace is bestowed through sacramental signs. And, you know, you tweak a sacramental sign here and you adjust a sacramental sign there to reflect me or you or, or the cantor or the priest or whatever. All that is serving to do is to diminish uh, the, the sacramental means by which grace is delivered and... And maybe this is even more the case, the the possibility for you as the recipient to receive it. Now, you might say, well, I don't know all that stuff, so it doesn't make any difference to me sitting in the pew, you know, how Father begins the Mass. Well, but uh, I think we have to know that, you know, if the Mass or any liturgy isn't at least as a starter following uh, the books and the norms and the rubrics that have grown out of tradition— then you, it will be impossible for you to ever come to that understanding. So you at least need to celebrate it well. And then hopefully after that, you can start to say, oh, that's why this happens and that happens. And this person does that and says that. And, and the mundane part of it, too, I mean, I think it's important, you know, if somebody is elected president and it's their first public you know, appearance, not going to say, hey, what's up, everybody? Uh, you know, there's <laughs> there's a formality to that, you know, you say good evening or good morning or something or, you know, whatever. But, you know, there's a way to do it. There are structures and forms, even in the way we talk in everyday life. Yeah. Well, in fact, even let, let's let's take it up a notch. So 
of course, we hope the priest begins in the name of the Father. And I mean, the, the, the first words out of his mouth. <laughs> well, this goes to your question before. What's the very first word of the Mass every single time? In. 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 Now, we could say, unless it's the answer is antiphon. We, we'll, we'll just have to leave that one uh, unresolved for now. But the very first thing that the priest, standing in the person of Christ, at the chair of Christ, in the name of Christ, as head of the church says, every single time is the word in. It doesn't matter the season. It doesn't matter the occasion. He says in. Now, ideally, though, he doesn't just say the word, he sings it. So, in fact, if you if you open up the missile, um, again, many people might be surprised to, to see that it's not just the words that are there. So you have all this red, the rubrics we're looking. And then you have the black, which is the thing you say. But you even have a muse, you even have music to sing this. Right? So, Dennis, do you want to sing that? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, a note, so to speak. My kids do that when we're out at restaurants. <laughs> I go, we're like, hey, we got to pray. Yeah. And he says, in the name of the Father. I think we went to Egg Harbor, Dennis. That was when we took the best family photo ever. But it, my wife and I were not in the photo. It was you and my kids. And it's like every mm-hmm. single kid is looking and smiling. And you weren't in the picture. I have that effect uh, on children for some reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, but Dennis, is this just some liturgical institute thing that, uh, you know, we're hung up on singing all this stuff or this is what? Chris likes no. or Jesse likes. The Mass is a sung prayer, which is sometimes recited, Chris. Thank you. Andrew Wadsworth, Monsignor Wadsworth. Yeah, that's, that's a good memorable line. He's mm-hmm. uh, he's the, uh, I don't know his title, executive director or something like that of uh, ISIL at the moment. Yes, International Commission on English and the Liturgy. But if if you go back to general instruction number 40, right? And this I is will. about This is about the importance of singing, right? And read that second line there, Dennis, uh, at uh, number 40. Remember, I have the deficient uh, That's deficient right. one. Although it is not always necessary, e.g. in weekday masses, to sing all the texts that are of themselves meant to be sung, every care should be taken that singing by the ministers and the people is not absent in celebrations that occur on Sundays and on holy days of obligation. Oh, next one. Oh, number, oh the second part, yeah. In choosing the parts actually to be sung, however. All right, stop. Right, okay, so... Uh, we're good, faithful uh, followers of the germ, and we recognize you don't have to sing absolutely everything. Okay, so then your next question is, well, if we're not going to sing everything, which parts are we going to choose to sing? Okay, go ahead. And this seems like one of them, right? Yeah. Well, let's, we'll see. Those that are of our, our greater importance, especially those to be sung by the priest and the deacon or the lector with the people responding or by the priest and people together. Whenever the people s- respond, that's time number one to sing. And the sign of the cross and the people's reply is consequently one of those. One of those things is one of those things. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's one of them too. Yeah. But I mean, think, I mean, and I think we should flag these as we go through this uh, slog through them. I mean, through the, our walk through the uh, uh, (laughs) celebration of the Tell us how you really feel, Chris. (laughs) Gosh. Remember the good old days of sacrosanctive concilium? Yeah. How am I supposed to sell this podcast and, and liturgy degrees when you're like, as we slog through this church document? Yeah. Anyway, so, uh, yeah. So, uh, but I think we, we, should, we should point these things out is that um, this is in the church's mind, 
right? Remember how this whole season got started is you have this document called Traditionis Custodes that makes this claim that, you know, that the sadness that the popes have, Benedict Francis, you know, when the liturgy is not celebrated according to the Second Vatican Council that reformed the books out of the tradition for modern needs. And I, th- I think very many good Holy Orthodox priests. Yeah, we're just we're doing. I'm doing it with what the book says. Well, let, let's take a look there. That uh, I think this um, this. Well, I mean, people listening, you guys listening. How often do you go to mass? And uh, I mean, we've talked about how sometimes "in" is not always the first word, but that the priest is actually saying the sign of the cross. I mean, th- this is not some bizarre fringe uh, theory about how mass might be celebrated. This is exactly what the book. I'll say it again because I've said it before and I'll say it again again. We do music and liturgy more backwards compared to the church's instructions maybe than anything else. Most people kiss the altar. Priests come in when they do it. You know, they don't kick the altar or ignore the altar, right? They kiss the altar. They most of the time wear the right investments. But people most of the time sing hymns and maybe nothing else, which is just backwards, backwards, backwards. Mm-hmm. Chris, yeah, I know you're an office of worship director. Get on that. <laughs> oh, it's it's so true. I, it's, I just think it's only been about a century. <laughs> Jared's been banging this drum. Uh, as yeah, well. it's like I saying, uh, "In the name of the Holy Spirit and the uh, Son and the wow. Father." <laughs> wow. Anyway, all right. So I think we've made that point this time. We'll come back and make it again. All right. So that completes number one. Okay, so the, the, can we just review? We this? did it. Let's get to the plot. Yeah, <laughs> and, that, and it'll go. It'll go more quickly after this. But uh, so, the, is it worth reading that again? Order of Mass number one. Sure. Yeah, it's been a long time. Here, I'm the one complaining that it's taking too long. Yeah, slog us through this. Yeah, slog it. Slog through it. But I mean, think back if you if you haven't listened to these past podcasts, when the people are gathered, we talked about the spiritual disposition that's required to gather. As, as a church, as a member of the body of Christ, the priest approaches the altar with the ministers. And we talked about the we talked about all the, 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 the ministers that could be a part of it, the vesture they're wearing, the order of the procession and things like that. While the entrance chant is sung, we talk about all the different options, the manner of singing and things like that. When he arrives at the altar, he makes a profound bow with the ministers and he venerates the altar with a kiss. We talked about all these things. He incenses. We talked about that. Then he goes to the chair. We talked about the, the meaning of the chair. Uh, and then we talked about signing of the, ourselves with the sign of the cross uh, and singing uh, the sign of the cross and, and the greeting. So, I mean, this this is, you know, I and mean, when people don't see that, I mean, so first of all, the ministers have an obligation to do this right, beautifully, authentically, radiantly. Uh, but then even when they do, I mean, if people could just kind of scratch the surface and see all that's happening before their sort of <laughs> sacramental eyes, I mean, I mean, no longer would you hear, uh, this, I don't get anything out of mass, it's boring, it's completely irrelevant, you know, it's just this, you know, mumbo jumbo, whatever it is. I mean, all that stuff would go away. We could uh, see a little bit more of that. But and, You know, maybe we should do an episode on the sign of the cross alone someday. I, you know, in my deep, deep preparation for this podcast, ran across a book called The Sign of the Cross, Recovering the Power of the Ancient Prayer by Bert Getze. He said the sign of the cross has six meanings. Hey, this is almost like a quiz opportunity. Can any of you think of the six things that a sign of the cross is? Well, one of them is Jesus. Well, yeah, they're all Jesus in a way. 
<laughs> he says the first one is a confession of faith. He says it's like a mini creed because you're recounting the baptismal promises. Uh, that it is, in fact, a renewal of baptism. You're doing the being, you know, bringing back those words. A mark of discipleship, uh, acceptance of suffering, a defense against the devil, and a victory over self indulgence. How about that? There's a lot. So do it, do it right, sing it, sing it twice. No, just once, but. <laughs> All, right. All right. And again, but, you know, when you go to Mass this Sunday, I mean, don't be a nitpicker, but notice stuff. And see mm-hmm. see what you see. And then become a nitpicker and uh, irritate all your friends and family. <laughs> for and then slog through the rest of this series with us uh, <laughs> as we go through it like molasses, just really in detail and very slowly. Do we have time <laughs> for, for a, question? a liturgy? Okay, slogging. <laughs> yeah, we do. Let's do a question. Okay. All right. Since we're really fast. Do we have time for a liturgy question? So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right. This week, we have a question from a conference participant in Yakima, Washington, for our Transfigured Conference there. Dennis, you spoke to somebody after our conference, and he had a question about uh, something in the marriage, right? Yes, he's our Yakima man, or our Yakima man. He asked what we knew about a custom and Catholic weddings where the bride and groom would be wrapped in a veil. We, I was talking about the you know veiling things and the veil, the temple, and then he was asking why would there be a veil in this wedding custom. And uh, I didn't know about this, but apparently Chris, who knows all <laughs> – what do you know about this, Chris? Well, I know what the rite says, but I don't know what the custom is. I think uh, we're going to hand it off to Jesse to explain the custom. But in the uh, in this current edition of the of Order of Celebrating Matrimony, uh, there's this uh, section. It's called the, blace, the, the blessing and placing of the lazo or the veil. That's the the heading. And this is what the rubric says. It says according to local customs. The rite of blessing and imposition of the lazo, parentheses, wedding garland, parentheses, or of the veil may take place before the nuptial blessing. Uh, the spouses remain kneeling in their place. If the lazo has not been placed earlier, it is now convenient to do so. It may be placed at this time or else a veil is placed over the head of the wife and the shoulders of the husband, symbolizing the bond that unites them. And while he does that, the priest says... Bless, O Lord, this veil, a symbol of the indissoluble union that Kim and Jesse have established from this day forward before you and with your help. Then it says the last rubric is the veil or lazo is held by two family members or friends and is placed over the shoulders of the newly married couple. So I don't know the cultural significance Um I just know what the right says. But Jesse, you sort of did something like this or no? 
No, we didn't do anything with this. Oh, um, I but I just want to say that I feel a little vindicated because when we were talking, I had said, oh, the lasso. And he said, no, it was a veil. And then now mm. I'm like, now it's it says he uses both of those terms. So it sounds like we were talking about the same thing. Why did I think you had done this? Is it Because my wife is Filipino. Is it, is it a Filipino custom? It is, yes. Okay. But huh. we did not but we did not do that. Yeah, where's Kim now? I mean, we need her on this She's uh, at home and I she would know nothing about that. <laughs> <laughs> I think she okay. would know a lot. And and her parents got married in, in a courthouse, so they they have, I don't think that's allowed in the courthouse. So, uh, <laughs> but, but can no. we do a little theological riffing on this, Chris? Because what did it say there? The veil is a sign of their symbolizes union. union. Yeah. Normally, the veil symbolizes division, right? The veil between heaven and earth in the hmm. temple, the unveiling at the apocalypse, right? It's the it's the letting you know about things. Mm. When you take the veil up, you know the bride wears the veil; she's hidden from the husband until. The veil is lifted, and then he can step across and, and kiss her, sort of like heaven and earth kissing. So why the veil would symbolize unity and in the Christian way and from the head to the shoulder, I don't know. I imagine there's a local reason for that that uh, isn't necessarily contrary to Scripture, but it has some kind of different accrued meaning over time. Maybe we'll be able to figure that out. Didn't you mention some? I mean, well, we, we have other veils that aren't, divisive but that cover something so like a uh, tabernacle veil or a chalice veil right and part of what he was asking is you know usually you cover up things that are precious and veiling diminishes what you can actually see but it indicates how important the thing is so if you have a beautiful tabernacle and you put a veil over it you can't see the tabernacle but by the very fact of hiding it you're saying how precious it is and then the unveiling has to be rare and relatively infrequent because otherwise it becomes cheapened by being seen all the time so i don't know if this has anything to do with uh, how veils used in this wedding situation so we'll have to figure that out yeah well again if it's a filipino custom or uh Spanish or Hispanic. I don't. I don't know. But I suppose you'd have to go on the ground uh, to those custom to those places and see where it is that they that they've come from. But yeah, I, I think you know, Dennis, you're onto something about covering things that are holy and sacred, especially on this day. I don't know. All right, Yakka Man. I hope that at least helps a little. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, the Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture and Ex Corde, both at Benedictine College. Now that's a podcast.